This is weird. We will not have any music or commercial breaks today on the show. My sound card went bad. And uh, it's going to take a little process to install a new one. So probably today and tomorrow's show won't have any commercials, any intro music. It'll just have the show starting out with my mug and me talking. We'll give a couple moments for some more people to arrive. They're already coming in live. Yeah, this is, you know, the show must go on. What am I going to do? I can't cancel an interview. And this interview today is too important anyway. You know, um, I did my first show in 2006 um, using the California VA uh, report study on uh, the linkage between strength, muscle mass, and longevity. And since then, we've done so many shows um, in that category that we actually started doing shows called Muscle Saves Lives. Uh, where we had people come on who had uh, horrible car accidents, uh, uh, falling down stairs. A guy got thrown like 150 feet off of a motorcycle when he was racing, and he bounced off the ground, and everybody thought he was dead, and he stood up. Um, the noble pursuit of muscle is becoming increasingly more and more important. In fact, the only thing to show to have actual effect on longevity and health span in humans not rodents, uh, is actually uh, keeping as much muscle as you can as you age. I think we talked about one study that showed that men who get past 65 and women past 60 who maintain adequate amount of muscle not only live longer uh, but do better. They, they develop less diseases. Uh, they're not uh, put in nursing homes. Oh, you know, mom, you fell twice. You got to go in a nursing home now because they can get out of chairs themselves. And it's really hard to get the medical orthodoxy to pay attention to muscle. We've talked to doctors about this. They say, oh, you know, it's hard enough to get people to take their their pharmaceutical drugs every day. We can't force them to go exercise. Well, you can't force them, but maybe suggest it. Maybe if insurance started paying for personal trainers and gym memberships, we would have less sick people. Um, before we get started on today's interview, I have to thank our title sponsor, and that's Legendary Foods, makers of the Tasty Pastry. If you're a low-carb guy like me, um, four to five net carbs, 20 grams of high-quality protein, less than one gram of sugar, but you will think you're eating something you're not supposed to. In fact, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You cannot get your kids to eat a healthy protein bar. They'll go, ew, but they will eat every one of these in your house because it really tastes like cake. Go to shrnetwork.biz slash legendary. Use the code SHR10 to save 10% off. And without further delay, let me bring my guest on so I'm not the only person talking to you today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Peggy Cawthon. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So you heard my little uh, dissertation at the uh, beginning of the show. I, I am convinced that muscle saves lives, and I've done shows that exemplifies that. And your study really adds to this discussion. Um but why this study? What other work have you done or colleagues done that this needed to be looked at? Yeah, so one of the motivating factors is that uh, when I was in training to become an epidemiologist, you know, I'm kind of a data nerd and epidemiology nerd, I started reading about muscle and its importance in aging. And, you know, the associations between muscle and aging, the way we often measure it in studies um, is not as strong as you would expect. And so there, along with muscle, people also talk about muscle quality and how important this is. 
But it seemed to me like just the absolute amount of muscle mass we'd have would be really important. And some of the tools we've used in the past, like DEXA scans to approximate lean mass, which people assume is mostly muscle, you know, have some limitations. You know, you have to go interact with the DEXA machine, exposes people to radiation. And then also the way that the lean mass measure is associated with outcomes in older people, um, it's just much less strong than you would expect. And so it seemed like we needed another tool to be able to measure muscle mass. And then when um, I heard about this, uh, the D3CR measure, method to measure muscle mass that uses a labeled creatine molecule and a urine test to see how much muscle someone has, it really intrigued me. And I thought that this could be really an answer to understanding and quantifying how much muscle people have and how it's related to you know, other things that can happen to them terms of, you know, death, fractures, disability, hospitalizations, et cetera. So let, let's talk about three, D3CR because I had never heard of it before your study, and I'm sure my audience isn't familiar with it either. As you said earlier, you know, DEXA scan, muscle biopsies, these have been the gold standards to try to assess the amount of lean body mass or muscle that a person uh, carries throughout their life. But D3CR uses a labeled creatine, as you said. Uh, explain what, what that does. Like if, you, if I take a labeled creatine and then you look at my urine, how, how can you tell how much muscle I have? Yep. So uh, we leveraged some uh, facts about creatine biology to make this work. So uh, a couple of things you need to know. First, um, almost all the creatine in your body is found in the muscle. So if you're able to figure out how much creatine is in your body, you're able to do some back calculations and figure out how much muscle you have. Creatine is also found in the muscle at a relatively constant concentration. So you can just plug in a number to an equation. We also know that creatine is uh, converted to creatinine and that's rapidly excreted in the urine. And so um, because it, we can recover pretty much all the creatine that's converted to creatinine in urine, um, it also allows us to use this as, a, as to trace where the molecule goes through your body. And if we're able to look at the ratio of the labeled creatinine that's excreted in the urine, so the label is converted from the labeled creatine to the labeled creatinine, um, if we're able to look at the labeled creatinine to the total creatinine in your urine, then we're able to back calculate how much creatine you have, and then from that, figure out how much your muscle is. And we have an algorithm that's, you know, once we know the numbers, we just plug it in and, and um, do the measures. But it's it's nice because it doesn't require people to interact with any expensive machinery. You can do this at home. Um, the downside is it's not available yet clinically because we've just started implementing it in, in research settings. So let's talk about creatine for a second because this audience is the type of audience, and I use creatine monohydrate. I supplement with it. Mm -hmm. Um and I've been doing it for decades. And, um, and, and so what we talk about in, 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 in this silo is creatine loading so that you have the maximum amount of creatine saturation in muscle, mm -hmm. which would mean that if I don't supplement, I'm not going to have completely saturated muscle uh, because your body makes its own creatine from some other amino acids. Uh, and as a result, like vegans have very low creatine levels because they don't eat any animal mm -hmm. protein. So, uh, tuna and pork have the highest concentrations of creatine out of any animal flesh, followed by beef, 
and so on and so forth. So is it is it really true to just say, well, we know that everybody's creatine is this, so we can use this formula? So that's, um, there is some data, but it's very old. It's from like the 1960s uh, from, you know, multiple muscle biopsies across the body. Um, we have a few studies where we're doing this CR measure along with muscle biopsy. And we hope to answer that question where we'll measure the absolute creatine concentration. One of the ways we think about this B3CR muscle mass measure is it's, it's really a measure of functional muscle. The creatine in the muscle is found right by um, the uh, where the contractile proteins are. So if you have more creatine in your muscle, you potentially have, you know, you're really um, providing the energy to the contractile muscle proteins. And, and so it could be that even if there is um, some slight variation in creatine concentration in the muscle, what this measure is really doing is sort of a, measuring the energetic potential of muscle as opposed to just the total amount of muscle that's there that has no contractile proteins in it. Right. Because creatine increases ATP turnover. It's a donor to ATP. Yes. Whoa. What was that? That was my, um, Oh, that, that sounded like, I thought I was, it was like a piercing sound. Um, you know, so, so we know that creatine supplementation at least allows you to get a couple extra reps out. Uh, creatine has been used by the military uh, to increase awareness during night shifts. Um, so you, you, I, obviously it does other things besides muscle, but you're right. The energetic potential of muscle is influenced by how much creatine your muscles have. Yes, yes. And so that's where we think that some of these associations are, are coming from. And that's really what's most important for, you know, I study mostly older adults and aging and, you know, Having a nice physique is one thing, but what they really want is the ability to keep doing their day-to-day lives. So right. they're not interested necessarily in bulk. They're interested in, um, in you know, really functional muscle that can help them get from the we're, we're interested. In, we're interested in strength. And, I, you know, yeah. I have hard – clinicians have a hard time talking about strength and muscle because most of them look at it as some esoteric, you know, oh, you know – it's unimportant, and it's really not. Where we're learning now that the more muscle you carry into your later years, the the, the better you're you're going to do. And yeah. strength, you know, one of my listeners said it so succinctly on a show recently. You know, like the stronger you are, the harder you are to kill. <laughs> you know? So really, you know, the strong you know, the, the, the strong survive. That's been an axiom for thousands of years. They knew that. Um, so it's about time that people start paying attention to muscle and strength in a clinical setting, in my humble opinion, because uh, we've known this in this audience for a long time. So talk about your study. How was your study designed? What were you looking for? What were your endpoints that you wanted? So, uh, I think you found this through a single, one of the many papers that we've written on this project. Um, but I'll tell you about the whole picture altogether. So, um, there's been an ongoing study that I've led. Um, called the Osteoproduct Fractures in Men Study. And it was initially designed to look at um, risk factors for fracture in older men. You know, because fracture is really important. Hip fracture is really debilitating, particularly in men. They're much less likely to survive after a hip fracture than women. 
Um, but the study, being a study in older men, really expanded its focus to go from just osteoporosis to other conditions of aging, you know, mortality, disability. And we added this um, D3CR muscle mass measure to one of the follow-up visits. And we, we measured this measure, the D3CR measure, we were also able to look at a bunch of other things we collected in the study. Strength, measures of physical performance, which we often just quantify as how fast someone walks. Um, we're able to look at disability, um, both at the single time point and then predicting who gets disability over time. Hip fractures. Um, importantly, and then mortality, which of course is the ultimate aging endpoint. And we, we found is that this D3CR measure is strongly predictive of mortality. Um, people with the lowest, in the lowest 25% of the muscle measures were about three times more likely to die than people in the highest quartile. And people in that lowest 25% were also about six times more likely to have a hip fracture than people in the upper Quartile. And it was interesting because it looks like these associations um, are true even once you account for how strong and how fast someone is. So it's not just your performance, but how much muscle you have is also important for these outcomes. You know, what's fascinating. Uh, just recently, someone sent me a paper. It was probably about three months ago um, that implied that um, – that breaking a hip occurs before the fall. And this is fascinating. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you fall, you fall on your butt. You have no muscle on your butt. You break your hip, but that's not it at all. They're falling because the hip is breaking and bone mineral density uh, is affected tre tre tremendously by how strong you are. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, if you, if you take a, if you take a regular car and you drop a big engine and it, it twists the chassis. So what do you do? You got to go in and you got to plate weld strips of metal to the chassis to strengthen it. The body does this automatically. The stronger you get, the greater the demand for mineralization of your bones becomes is signals that actually happen. I mean, I remember we talked about a study probably 13 years ago that showed that um, squatting with some weight, postmenopausal women who did squats with maybe just 60 pounds on their back, something, mm -hmm. you know, had a greater increase in bone mineral density in their hips than women who were on Boniva. Mm -hmm. Boniva is the gold standard for keeping women from developing brittle bones. And, and, and the weightlifting has no side effects, at least no negative effects. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, we have to remember that when we talk about muscle, we have to talk about bone because they, they work hand in hand. Bone gets stronger if muscle is stronger, but bone gets weaker if muscle gets weaker. And this, I suppose, is why the hip joint breaks first and then you fall down. Yeah. Yeah. There's the, the, we've looked at a lot of hip fractures and what the circumstances are. And they're clearly people who, fall first and then break their, their hip. That's mm -hmm. sort of the standard paradigm. Mm -hmm. But there are some, particularly in very frail older women, there are some circumstances that we've, you know, reviewed all the medical records and the reports from the participants in our studies. And it's pretty clear that they had such poor bone strength that there was some 
biomechanical change to their muscle, their bone before they fall. And so maybe it was a stress fracture, you know, type thing that then was exacerbated when they fell. But there is some, um, there are some reports that, you know, I wasn't there to see what happened, but it seems pretty clear that something happened to the bone first. But those are more the exception. Talk about the mortality portion of this uh, study that you did, because that's, you know, that, that that's the big one. That's the one that um, the California VA, I don't know if you're familiar with that study. It was a longitudinal study. It was about 20 years. I want to say there were almost 20,000 men. And all they did was at the beginning of the study, they made these men do a leg press. Mm-hmm. They assessed their strength. And then every time these guys came back to the, the clinic for whatever reason, they were asked to do a leg press. And what they discovered was that the men who had the strongest leg press at the beginning of the study and maintained that strength throughout the study were still alive at the end of the study. The guys who had the weakest leg press at the beginning of the study who continued to get weaker, they died during the study. Yeah. So this idea that strength begets longevity, it's undeniable, but it's easily ignored by the medical orthodoxy. So talk about the, the, the mortality factor in, that you discovered. Yeah. So we had, um, we followed these men for about three years, not a super long time. And, you know, we accounted for the fact that people who have less muscle tend to have more, you know, medical conditions. So we accounted for that statistically in our models. Um, We accounted for age. You know, we all know that as you get older, your muscle strength goes down. So we want to just make sure that it's not a marker for age or a marker for underlying illness. And as far as we could tell, there's still this what we call independent effect of muscle on these outcomes. So even when you consider all these other measures, muscle still is an important, low muscle is still an important risk factor for mortality. And the question then is, well, what's the mechanism? How does muscle kill you? Well, some of it could still be some of the factors that we couldn't account for, but it's also likely that more muscle keeps you more active. It prevents you from having quite as long of a period of inactivity when you're ill. It keeps you, um, you know, it may help your metabolic health as well. And so all of those things contributing together give you an advantage that someone who has less muscle won't, won't have. You know, you know, the funny thing is, um, so, uh, according to the, the CDC, the number one killer of Americans is heart disease. But that's not really true because it's it's the insulin resistance and the metabolic derangement that begets heart disease. It also begets high blood pressure. It also it leads to more cancers. And when you have muscle and you exercise regularly, you maintain a level of insulin sensitivity that's seen in a much younger adult. Mm-hmm. And if you're sensitive, if you're insulin sensitive, then you're probably managing your blood sugar well. Yeah. And if you're managing your blood sugar well, you're probably not going to get heart disease. We know Dr. Dale Bredesen's been on the show, and you know the number one risk factor for d- dementia and, and Alzheimer's is, is metabolic derangement, because uh, it screws everything up: your sleep, blood sugar, everything. And so, as simple as it sounds, but exercising, which by the way, exercising is an artificial replacement for what we did for 2.5 million years: was struggle and work hard every day. And now we don't do that. So we have to create an artificial replacement for that. Oh, two hours a day or what hour a day you go work out. But it's no mystery 
to anyone who's really interested why people who maintain muscle mass as they age, I'm 63, I'll be 64 in a couple months, you know, we fare better. Why? Because we have muscle. Yeah. And, and forget about, well, why? Just take it and work. <laughs> you know, do it, you know? So you want to comment on that? Um, no, I agree. I mean, us scientists want to know why, because there are situations where exercise is very difficult. So one of the best examples, I think, is like recovery of hip, after a hip fracture, yes. where people, because of the fracture, you know, you can do like arm exercises, but you can't really, you know, exercise your lower body to increase your mobility. And so understanding the ways in which exercise works will help uncover pathways that we could have other therapies to improve. So either nutritional um, approaches or pharmaceutical approaches, which so far have been not successful. Well, okay. So let so nutritionally, older people tend to eat less protein. And we know that mTOR is stimulated by high leucine protein. Mm-hmm. So one would be to get older people to eat more protein. But God forbid you give someone an anabolic steroid. Because Barry yeah. Bonds isn't allowed to use it, so old people shouldn't be. Either. I mean, it's just it's just silly the way we have demonized these drugs that work. You know, Dianabol, uh, uh, Anavar, um, uh, Decadurabolin was created for women uh, 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 with breast cancer who were undergoing cachexia, and they would give them these drugs, and these women would become robust. We also know that men, there are men today who've had AIDS for 25, 30 years, but they're on anabolic steroids. Shame on them. No, because what kills you from AIDS, if it's not Sarkozy, it's wasting. You waste away. You, you die from frailty. And so give them anabolic steroids. We have to stop this nonsense that anabolic steroids are horrible because baseball players abuse them. Baseball players abuse Adderall. Are we going to tell every kid with ADHD we can't write you a prescription anymore because Barry Bonds is using Adderall? It's just yeah. medicine, medicine needs to get this straight. Ad- anabolic steroids are great. I use them. <laughs> well, I'm on HRT. I've been on testosterone since 2007. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is one of those. Um, you know, I'm a very cautious person. So I think I would say that there are some side effects that people should be aware of. But, you know, figuring out what your, like, risk benefit tolerances is is important and there are there are ongoing studies with either anabolic steroids or molecules that have um similar methods similar uh impact without having the full range of potential so we've done shows on SARM selective androgen receptor modulator so what they do is they the 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 receptor is a mosaic of domains exactly testosterone activates the entire receptor and SARMs don't. But now what we're learning from SARMs is there are unwanted effects of SARMs. Mm-hmm. Testosterone is naturally occurring in the body. Why are we looking for that when we have this? And and we've and men have had testosterone, women have had testosterone in their bodies since since they went through puberty. So yeah. I, that SARMs thing, uh, I'm not convinced is a wise choice. But I understand the pharmaceutical industry has to recover their investments, studies and stuff like that. But the other thing I want to mention about the the unwanted effects of of anabolic steroids, 
most people are not going to inject anything. So they want a pill, and that's going to leave them to methylated uh, drugs that are designed to um, uh, avoid degradation from first-pass liver. And those anabolic steroids have the same risks as taking methylprednisone because you got stung by bees and the doctor wants to suppress any methylated drug, methylated birth control pills. I mean, they, they increase thrombotic index and clotting. They do all those horrible things, but yet we reconcile those as, oh, well, that, that's just a necessary effect that we have to deal with. But when we talk about anabolic steroids, we go, well, but wait a minute, they do these things. Well, they do those same things with these other drugs too. I'm sorry, but I, 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 I'm tired of the, the, the false outrage about a drug that could save millions of people's lives because, because frailty now surpasses tobacco as the number one killer in America. Yeah. Frailty. So, okay. So let's get back to your study. What time is it? I have to remind myself. Oh, so we would normally be taking a commercial break right now. So I'm not letting anybody off the hook. You have to go to my website and buy something. That's all. <laughs> because remember that the sponsors make this show possible. I can't run commercial breaks today or tomorrow, quite frankly. Uh, and Paul Check's going to be on tomorrow. I know he's a big fan favorite. Um, but please visit the website, see if there's something you can use and patronize the sponsors whenever possible. And that's the extent of the commercial break today. Great. Okay. So, um, were there any things that jumped out at you in this research? Did you, did you go, wow, we didn't expect to see that. Um, I, I guess the, when we were trying to get this funded, we had, you know, there's this big process to get money to do research in the U S and you go through peer review and one of the reviewers of our grant said, well, how do you know your hypotheses are going to be correct? And I said, well, we don't. That's what scientists do, right? Study, yeah. yeah. You don't know what you're going to find. And I guess that was surprising to me is how close to what we expected the results were. And they were even a little bit stronger than I expected. So the association with hip fracture is, is really quite strong. It's about the same risk for um, the same magnitude of association with bone mineral density, which was a little surprising to me. And the fact that this measure of muscle mass is just strongly predictive of mortality was also surprising. I thought it would be associated with mortality, but much in a more nuanced way. So the fact that the, the associations were so strong was, was surprising. Yeah, uh, and and I and I get that. I get that. I, I'm looking at so there were some other studies also. Um, so uh, I guess th this was this was your study, but there was another study that I found that also looked at used the same method, the D3 uh, creatine mm -hmm. method of assessing uh, muscle mass, and um, but it it. Um, but it, it was it was some other study that showed similar to what you learned that mm -hmm. the muscle mass led to less of these outcomes that they were studying. Just let me just see if I can find it real fast, real, real, real fast. Here, just click that. Um, no, that's the same. Uh, uh, disregard, disregard. I, I must have emailed myself three of the same studies. Um, so. What do you hope people take away from your research? Um, well, I hope that for the 
short term that it just reinforces the title of your segment, right? Muscle saves lives, that muscle is important, that it's often overlooked. And then, you know, in sort of next steps, I think it's to get the clinician in particular to think about muscle and how to implement, you know, assessing muscle either through this measure or through uh, really standardized tests for muscle function, um, which is what some um, of my colleagues are working on so that physicians will have a number. I think one of the challenges in, in clinical work is that there's no standard way to measure muscle. So we all measure blood pressure the same way, right? Everyone knows what it is. You put your arm in a machine and it yeah. looks at the pressure, but we don't have a standard way to measure muscle function. And there's a million ways to do it. How fast you stand up from a chair, how fast you walk, how strong your grip strength is. And so if there's a way they could implement this very standard measure so that all clinicians know what it means, you can call someone and say, oh, their blood pressure is 140 over 90. And another clinician will know immediately what that is. But if you say someone's muscle strength, grip strength is 28, a clinician will say, I have no idea what you mean. Right. You know, and so uh, just another way to get muscle integrated into clinical care and standardized in a way that it can work with the way the medical field operates would be fantastic. Why, why not use the way the bodybuilding industry uh, does? So, you know, bodybuilders are very, very interested in how much muscle they carry. Now, a lot of it is visible because they mm-hmm. tend to have very thin skin, lot, very little subcutaneous body fat. Uh, so we call that separation. When you can see the separation between the bicep and the tricep and the and the brachial, you know, mm-hmm. you already realize that this person is lean and muscular. But body caliper, uh, you know, and they have those impedance scales that are very accurate as long as you didn't drink a ton of water before you stand on it. Yeah. You know, um, like like you don't have to be a- exact – yeah, you have to be able to say, yeah, this person's got a, you know, a, a, of their 212 pounds, you know, 150 of it is muscle. That's pretty damn good. You know, I mean, wh- why not just use something that is not invasive mm-hmm. been used for decades uh, by those athletes who are interested in how much body weight is actually muscle? Um, the problems, especially in older people, is all sorts of other things start going wrong that influence how accurate they are. So, you know, you mentioned not drinking a lot of water before doing an impedance measure. Uh, the problem is a lot of older people have conditions that cause changes in hydration that throw that measure off quite a bit. Heart failure, kidney disease, you know, poor dietary intake, all of those things. So as something gets more inaccurate, the ability to, to predict outcomes accurately just disintegrates rapidly. Um, and the same thing with calipers, with body changes over time. And as people get older, there's a redistribution of fat. And so what, uh, while a caliper base measure might work really well in a 25-year-old bodybuilder, mm-hmm. and amongst all 25-year-old bodybuilders, you can imagine that as people get older and they have a lot of just variation in how their body um, composition changes over time, that the accuracy just isn't there for is is muscle mass independently important of the strength that the muscle produces 
We think so from the data we have. It looks like it's both mass and how strong you are that are associated with things like disability and mortality and hip fracture. And uh, whether or not that's because we're not measuring either strength or muscle perfectly or if it's because they really both are important, um, I think is still an open question. Um, for factors, for things that are more metabolically important, I think just how much muscle you have would be important as well, as we discussed about insulin and blood sugar, et cetera. Because, you know, we, and within the physical culture community, we have endomorphs, ectomorphs, you know, we have all these categories uh, that tries to assess a broad palette for genetic predispositions. Yes. And I have never been particular. I've never looked like a bodybuilder. Yeah. But I, I've squatted over 700 pounds and I regularly leg press 1500 pounds. And my, even my son used to say to me, you know, you just don't look like you would be that strong. Yeah. So I wonder if, you know, the efficiency of muscle, like, like I almost feel like there has to be a, a formula that intersects muscle mass and it, and, and its ability to function. And mm -hmm. so you can carry less muscle mass, but if you're this strong versus, you, you know what I mean? I, I kind of feel like we, we have to look at both of these and there's got to be a formula where they intersect somewhere. Yeah. And there's not a perfect relationship between muscle size and strength production. And so figuring out exactly why that is, I think is another point to, um, that's a really big point of interest amongst um, scientists to understand why some people have rel are relatively stronger for a given amount of muscle. And, you know, is it inefficiency in how their <laughs> contractile proteins are working? Is it that they're not able to deliver energy through mitochondria as quickly? Is it a neuronal, like the, uh, you know, the nerve conduction isn't where you want it to be? I don't, I don't know what the answer is. The answer is probably all of them. I, I have a funny feeling it has a great deal. Probably 70% of it is innervation, is nerve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, um, so when you use advanced training techniques to build strength and muscle, one of them is a static hold. Mm -hmm. so, you know, you, if, you're, if you're doing a bicep curl with a dumbbell, you know, you'll, you'll get your arm into that contracted position. You'll hold it. Mm -hmm. What happens is, as the muscle becomes weaker, you get this undulation, right? This pulsation. And that was explained to me by a neurologist as muscle fibers, you know, you have fast twitch, low, slow twitch. Muscle fibers um, are giving up. <laughs> and, and at the same time, a muscle fiber is being activated to take on its load. And so that's yes. why you have that you know, you, you, that, you, yeah. And, and when you do that often enough, you actually make new inroads in innervation. Yeah. So those, those nerves that used to go, call me if you need help, but I'll be resting over here. They start to actually change their fiber type to be activated at the beginning of the, of the movement. And so I, I got a funny feeling that innervation has a, 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 a big role in this. Now, what makes one person's nervous system different than another? Now, that now that's a completely, you know, who knows? But yeah. I got a funny feeling that innervation plays a big role in strength. When you see somebody who just doesn't look that strong, but, oh, my God, look what they can do. I just feel like they're using more of their muscle. 
you yeah. know? Yeah, no, I agree. I think, and it is an area of, um, it can be difficult to study in large numbers of people because, you know, one of the ways people measure innervation or denervation, which is a lack, you know, um, is to do a muscle biopsy, which clearly you can do it in people. It's not impossible, but it's not, physicians are never going to do muscle biopsies and just generally otherwise healthy people to see if they're, you know, muscle is poorly um, innervated. That's just not going to be worth the small risk that a biopsy entails. I, uh, I asked my physician to do a muscle biopsy in my calves because I've developed some uh, neuropathic issues. Yeah. And I thought, you know, I'd love to see what's in the tissue because yeah. I have, I have a theory about metabolic debris accumulation and tissue mm-hmm. that hampers innervation and blood flow and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. he's, you want me to do a muscle biopsy on your calf? I said, yeah, would you do it? And we'll send it away and we'll see what's going on in that tissue. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't do that. He's yeah. I'm willing to come on, man. No yeah. sense of adventure. <laughs> We have a new study where we have uh, muscle biopsies in about 900 older people that's just finishing enrollment. So we should have a lot more results soon. And one of the measures we have is about um, denervation of the muscle tissue from the biopsy. Oh, awesome. Can you- and also the DPCR maker is part of that product. Well, and I, I have this theory, you know, uh, I've had some of the most brilliant people in the world on this show. Dr. Bruce Ames was on my show mm-hmm. back in 2007. Um, but I, I've had Aubrey de Grey on, he's the, the founder of the, uh, mitochondrial theory of aging, which mm-hmm. I think is completely wrong, but that's okay. But <laughs> I've, I've formulated my own theory. You know, when I think about aging, what is it that changes in age? And one of the things is the bioaccumulation of metabolic debris from our diets, um, from like I, I eat beef every day. I, I, I have to go get phlebotomized because I accumulate iron very rapidly. And I started to think that like, like Elisa, my wife, she never eats beef and she is aging so friggin' great. It's ridiculous. She doesn't have any gray hair on her head and she's, she's 60, she's 63. Uh, no, she's 62. I'm 63. She's going to be 63. I'm going to be 64. Yeah. So, like she and I, I really think that, and she used to tell me like when she was young she couldn't donate blood because they said she was almost anemic. Well, that may have actually made her age better. So I, I, I would love to do biopsies, and just see what's in there. It, you know, is there iron accumulating in the tissue? Uh, what about um, things like glyphosate? You know, glyphosate is a synthetic form of glycine that gets incorporated into tissue, but the body doesn't know how to break it down. There's no organelles that can so, oh, that's glyphosate. We'll break it down and, and excrete it. It just, and in fact, uh, the term amyloidosis mm-hmm. is associated with glyphosate accumulation in the in the body. Now we did a show probably six, maybe eight years ago about amyloidosis of the heart causing heart failure. And, and they, they think it's coming from, the glyphosate exposure. And so I would just love to be able to see what accumulates in our tissue that, oh, we can go, oh, wait a minute, that's not good, you know, and maybe we need to find ways to get stuff out of people's tissue through aggressive um, blood donation is what I'm going to attempt. Mm. I'm going to attempt it. Yeah. You know, I'm going to attempt to try to donate blood every two weeks for as long as I can. Yeah. I'm not, I'm going to stay away from beef 
and pork. I'm going to eat chicken and fish. I'm going to limit any iron intake, and I'm going to see if my body will go, we need iron. Let's get it out of that tissue over there and bring it into the bloodstream. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. See yeah. So, you know, looking at the um, the properties of tissue in a way that we haven't been able to in the past is just, I think that this, this study I was describing, we call it the study of muscle mobility and aging. It will be able to address a lot of questions about what is going on in muscle biology that long-term identifies people who develop disability over time. Yeah, it would be really interesting. Uh, Craig Hollander says iron accumulation with polyunsaturated fatty acids causes the aging process called lipofusion. Lipofusion sounds like a, a Chinese dish of food or something like that. <laughs> I'll have a dish of lipofusion, please. Um, that's fascinating. And seed oils are under attack right now for good reason as well. Yeah. Um, you know, we're coming to the end of the interview. Did we forget anything? Did I miss anything? I'm kind of off my game today because I'm used to running commercials and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think then just a brief comment about the limitations and next steps for our project. So the big limitation of our study is that it was, we added this measure to an ongoing study of older men that were mostly white. And so we don't have a lot of data about very important subsets of the population like women or minority populations, people outside the U.S. And so we've been doing a lot younger age group. So we've been doing a lot of work to add this measure or to start new studies that have this measure in women, in underrepresented populations. And I think that will really provide a lot of insight. And we've looked at the data and it looks like the associations are mostly the same in women, but there may be a few important differences. And to really understand the differences, the sex difference in muscle and, you know, the fact that women live longer, but with more disability and the role muscle plays in that, I think could be really sort of the next five to 10 years of research for our group. And then that analogy I gave off the cuff at the beginning of the show is something I've used for a long time. Women outlive men by seven to nine years. Mm -hmm. They're more likely to be institutionalized because they fall getting out of a chair twice mm -hmm. and the kids go, mom, you, you can't, you can't live alone anymore. Like you can't, you're going to fall and get stuck on the floor. You won't be able to get, and yeah. that's the function of muscle. That's all. Yes. That's yeah. Yeah. And to understand whether or not the same processes work the same way in men and women with women having less exposure to testosterone and the menopause that men don't have such a decline in sex hormones. It's really fascinating. And the role muscle plays there, I think is still not well, super well understood. And so that's something we hope to focus on in the coming years. I call it, I call it the noble pursuit of muscle because I believe it is noble <laughs> to become strong. And I also say stronger is younger. We associate strength with youth. Yes. So if you're an older person like me and you get to the gym and you start setting goals and you use progressive overload techniques so that you're moving more weight, you're doing more reps, you have more energy, you're training for longer, you're getting younger. If you're getting stronger, you're getting younger. And this proves it because if you're getting stronger and you're turning the clock back, you're going to live longer, you're going to have fewer diseases, and you're actually going to be actively involved in life as opposed to sitting in a wheelchair in the solarium waiting for someone to change the channel for you because you don't know how to do it yourself sitting there. Right. I, right. It's really, it's, you know, this, it's really weird. 
two things that people ignore is death and the need to move and be active. Yeah. And Dr. Do- and Dr. Daniel Lieberman, the, the uh, Harvard anthropologist who's written one book that I didn't read yet, but I'm going to on exercise, but another one that was really fascinated me and really changed the way I look at things. I look at everything through an evolutionary uh, microscope. Why would this be happening? How did this serve us through evolution? And what are we ignoring? He, he wrote a book called The Story of the Human Body. And he talks about the fact that we, we are genetically predisposed to move less and eat more because it's only been the last 40,000 years that we've had the ability to have food all the time. Yeah. Before that, we, 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 we spent a lot of time finding food and chewing food, which contributed to our ability to stay strong and, and healthy longer. But yeah. given, given their druthers, uh, he said, if you had two coconut trees and hunter gatherer population uh, lived there and you put an escalator by one, they'd start taking the escalator. They of wouldn't, climb, they wouldn't climb because we're, we're programmed to use less energy and consume more energy. And, and we're seeing that we're seeing that, that evolutionary holdover affecting us today. It's why the population, I think the CDC said in just a few years, 50% of the population is going to be either overweight or obese. Yeah. It's true in many states. That's already the case. So sad. So yeah. sad. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for coming on today and thank you for the uh, awkward interview today with no music. I want to thank my audience for sticking around for a whole 45 minutes uh, without music and commercials. I know how you guys love the commercials. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's the only thing that people complain about. God, Carl, you have all those commercials. Just when she was getting interesting, you... So there you go. Today and tomorrow, no commercials. Bring your friends. Well, I was lucky. Thank you I, very much. I hope, I hope that you'll come back on when you have more information, especially that uh, that biopsy research. Yeah. yeah, I'd be happy to. Thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you so much. All right. uh, that's it. So tomorrow we have Paul Check on. I know you all know who he is because he is a very popular guy uh, with a huge following. And we're going to be talking about um, four doctors uh, and I, I don't want to give the show away, but these doctors are in your hands and you can use them whenever you want uh, to cure you of disease and make you strong. The only one that I don't think he has in there is Sun. And I think it's another huge mistake. The Dermatological Association has really done the human population a great disservice by telling us to be afraid of the sun when it played a profound effect on our evolution. As you can see from me, I'm not afraid of the sun. I get out there all the time, and I'm not afraid of skin cancer because I don't eat crap food. Sean Watson says, great episode. Thank you. Tomorrow's going to be pretty much the same. No commercials. All right, look, that's it for today. We'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for being here. Don't forget, share the show. You never know who you're going to influence to make a change in their lives and live longer and be healthier. So please share the show. See you tomorrow. Take care.